We're taking a break, as Scott mentioned, from our series in Acts, and we are having a conversation together about why we celebrate Easter. And some of you are coming in this morning and you're hearing us sing a Christmas song and thinking, that's kind of weird. But even as we listen to the words of that song and we sit in that this morning and we hear the words of that song talking about help is on the way, that Emmanuel has come. That's what we're going to be talking about. And the truth is that Easter is coming and whether you are regularly in church or not, you realize that you're going to have to drum up some excitement about this because Easter has implications for you. You're going to have to, whether you want to or not, manufacture some joy around this event. So you're going to go and get a basket or some fake grass or some plastic eggs or you are going to load up on some marshmallow peeps or some Cadbury eggs or some jelly beans, right? Because that's what Easter means. We know that Easter is coming because we, we see those things, and we know that we need to do that. It means I need to buy some vinegar, and I need to boil some eggs, and I need to buy one of those egg dyeing kits and start coloring them, right? It means um, I need to buy a new, not me personally, but maybe you, you're going to go out and buy a new dress or a new hat, <laughs> I don't know if people, do people still buy hats? I don't know if you buy Easter hats, okay? Or it means you're getting on Pinterest and you're looking for innovative ways to prepare ham or whatever side dish you're supposed to be preparing for this Easter season, right? Or you're trying to come up with a cute new appetizer that incorporates eggs somehow or form chocolate into the shape of a lily or whatever thing you're going to learn on Pinterest, means you're going to dress up your kids and take super cute pictures of them, or you're going to be inundated with cute pictures of other people's kids dressed up for church or dressed up as bunnies or in an old vintage wine barrel filled with actual bunnies or whatever kind of cute picture they want to orchestrate for Easter, right? We're going to do all of these things because Easter is coming. We're going to do all of this preparation because Easter is coming. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those things by themselves, but they're a little bit empty. They fall a little bit short of why we actually celebrate Easter. Would we agree on that? And whether you understand why we celebrate Easter or not, you have to at least understand that those things feel a little bit empty. Those things fall a little bit short. So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about why we do this to ourselves why do we celebrate at Easter? What is it that's worth celebrating? What's so great about Easter? That's what the postcard says that Scott showed you this morning. So let's have the conversation together because I think, I think what we would have to say is that Easter is more than marshmallow peeps. It's more than chocolate eggs. It's more than an occasion to dress up. It's much, much more than that. But the truth is, Many of us know that we're supposed to celebrate. Many of us even know why we're supposed to celebrate. But not everybody feels like celebrating when they come to church on Easter. So what we want to do over these next few weeks and what even our kids are doing in the next room is talking about why we celebrate so that when we come together on Easter Sunday, we would celebrate Easter and we would celebrate for the right reasons. If you received an invitation or as Scott mentioned this morning, you would see that this morning our topic of conversation is, does God have a plan? Does God have a plan? That's the question that we want to answer this morning. Now, why would we ask that question? What is it that motivates that kind of question? And here's why. We would all recognize 
that the world that we live in is broken. We can look around us and we can see that pretty plainly because we see a, a world that is filled with illness and we see a world that's filled with disease. We experience the struggle of broken relationships. We experience the struggle of unmet expectations. We look around us and we see violence and we see chaos and we see strife in the world. And even if we want to tune those things out and even if we want to try to numb ourselves from those things, at some point, some world event is going to break in and it's going to force that on us. It is going to show us that the world is broken and you don't have to think very hard to think of what those events are. They're probably different for each of us depending on our lifetime, but I think of events like 9-11 or I think of something like Sandy Hook or I think of groups like ISIS that bring this front and center and they... They put it in our face and say, you cannot ignore that the world is broken. And here's the problem with that, because if we say that we believe in God and we believe that God is all-powerful and that God is loving, then how do we reconcile a loving, all-powerful God with a world that we cannot say is right? The world is broken. We understand that. So how do we reconcile those two? And if you don't believe in God, then this is your argument. How can you say there's a loving, all-powerful God? All I have to do is look around me to say that that's not true. And if it's not your argument against the existence of God, it's certainly your argument against the character of God. And if you do believe in God, then this is the tension you have to live in. I believe in a loving, all-powerful God, and yet I live in a world that is broken and doesn't feel right. So what do we do with that? And we asked God, do you have a plan what is the plan, and is this your plan? Because this does not seem like a good plan, the world we're looking at right now. Clearly, I'm not going to stand before you this morning and tell you that God has no plan. You would not expect me to say that, and if I did, you should find another church. <laughs> God has a plan, and I think Scripture clearly points us to that plan, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. There is good news. That's what this is. We keep claiming this is good news, and as Pastor uh, Matt Chandler puts it, for news to be good, it has to invade bad spaces. That's what makes it good news, right? So we believe we have good news, and we believe that we're in a bad space. God has a plan. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before we open the Word of God this morning, would you pray with me? Father, this morning we're going to open your Word, and we just ask that you would speak to us through it. We're going to be confronted with some truth this morning, truth about who you are and who we are, and I just pray, Father, that you would help us to hear those things, those true things, and let them sink deeply into our hearts as we listen to your words. We thank you that we can be here this morning and even open your word together. We pray these things in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, would you turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3? That's where we're going to be. We're going to get there in a minute. If you don't have your Bible, what I usually do at this time is direct you to the aisle where we have some Bibles, but um, we only have four left. So if four of you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one if you can find it. That's good news too because that means that you're taking us up on our offer to take our Bibles home with you and you're welcome to do that. There are more on the way, they're just not here this morning. So if you don't have your Bible here, just look with a neighbor or listen along. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. That's really early in the Bible, really close to the front. In fact, if you're using our Bible, it's page 2. That's where you'll find us. Here's the deal. 
God has a plan, and we see that plan in the book of Genesis. God's plan is his peace, as the Hebrews would say, his shalom, his kingdom. And when we see in Genesis is the account of creation, and we see God's creation in perfect harmony. What we see is a dynamic partnership between God and man, where God is glorified and where man thrives. That's God's plan. And if you were to read Genesis chapter 1, and we won't read Genesis chapter 1 this morning, but you would see this throughout the narrative of creation, that as God creates and what God creates, it's a good thing. The things that God creates are good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 10 says, and God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1 verse 12 says, and God saw that it was good. Verse 18, and God saw that it was good. Verse 21, verse 25, and God saw that it was good. At the end of creation, at the end of the account, verse 31, and God saw, looked at everything that he had made and saw that it was very good. God has, I would say, a high standard. And yet when God finishes creating the world, he looks at it and says, yeah, it's pretty good. I'm satisfied with what I have created. I don't know if any of you have had an opportunity to watch the documentary Planet Earth. How many of you have seen that by show of hands? Okay, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It came out a few years ago, and I remember when it came out, my family and I would watch it. And essentially what it is is it highlights different areas of the world or different creatures or different like oceans or mountains or caves or whatever. And it's this unbelievable documentary about all of the animals and the processes and the creatures and the places that exist in the world. And as I watch that documentary, I can't help but think, what an unbelievably amazing God. Because I look at those things, and I like to think of myself as a pretty creative person, and I look at those documentaries and I think, yeah, I couldn't have thought of that. I could not have thought of that. There are things that we didn't even know existed in this world that cry out about how amazing their creator is that we only found recently, that have been there the whole time, the fingerprints of God all over his creation. And God looked at what he had made and he said, yeah, it's good. This is very good. And at the end of the creation account, God makes man. And he gives man dominion over what he's created. He places Adam in the garden and he says, Adam, this is my creation and this is all for you to enjoy. This is all for you to subdue. All of these animals are here for you to name. And then he realizes it's not okay for Adam to be alone. It's like, this is not going to work. One of my favorite um, southern preachers puts it this way. He says, God looks down at Adam and says, that old boy is not going to make it. (laughs) And so it says he creates a helper for him. He creates the woman. And he says, you guys are going to live in perfect partnership with one another. You're going to be in perfect harmony with one another, and you are going to help him to do all that I have tasked him to do. He's my viceroy in my creation. He has dominion over what I have created. And at the end of chapter 2, it says this. Chapter 2, verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is that in there? That seems kind of weird. It's saying they have nothing to hide. There is no shame in this world. Everything is in perfect relationship with each other because God has established relationships and those relationships are right. And here's what it looks like. There's a relationship between God and man. God is creator. Man is made in his image. 
He is subject to God, and God's creation is subject to him. There's a relationship between man and woman, and it's they're in perfect partnership. It says they're supposed to be like one person. And then there's a relationship between man and creation, what God has created, that man will subdue and have dominion over God's creation. And all of those relationships are right as they are established by God. But what happens? Genesis chapter 3, page 2 of the narrative of God and his relationship with mankind, and look what happens. The whole thing falls apart. How does it fall apart? Look with me, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. God's enemy enters the picture here, and the first thing that Satan does is question God's plan. That's the question of the morning, right? Does God have a plan? First thing Satan does is question the plan. Read with me. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So we'll stop there for a minute. First thing that Satan does is question God's plan. And he comes alongside Eve, and he said, man, did God put a lot of restrictions on you or what? God's plan is pretty restrictive. He said you can't eat of any tree in the garden. Was that true? Is that what God said? No, it's not what God said. He said there's one tree. There's one tree that I don't want you to eat from. Satan says, I don't know about this plan. You know that God is holding out on you, right? You understand that you could make your own plan. I'm not even sure this is the best plan. You know that if you were to eat from this tree, you'd be just like God. You could make your own agenda here, right? You could put your own plan together. So verse 6, what happens? What is Eve's response? You guys know this story. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So what happened? We know the the story of Adam and Eve. We know of the temptation, right? But look at the temptation of Eve with me for a minute. See how she's tempted. If you look at this passage, see, she saw that the, food was, the fruit was good to eat. It would satisfy her appetite. She saw that it was beautiful, that it was desirable, and she saw that it would satisfy herself, her sense of ego. It would make her like God. That is how she was tempted, and so she takes the fruit and she eats it. Now, Adam is not as complex as Eve, right? She just hands him the fruit and he eats it. That's how this goes down. And what happened? Everything's broken. That's the point where God's peace, God's shalom is shattered by that choice to make their own plan instead of God's plan. In that moment, the statement that Adam and Eve are making to God is, we reject your plan. We'll make our own plan now. Thank you very much. And immediately they know something's wrong. Because what does it say? Immediately they feel naked. They feel exposed. They feel shame. Verse 8, read with me. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
But the Lord called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So they hear God coming and they hide. That's the response. That's what sin does. They have disobeyed God, they have gone against his plan, and they hide from him because they've sinned. And look at Adam's response. What does he say to God? God says, where are you? And he says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Fear was not a part of God's plan. Shame was not a part of God's plan. Now they're both here, right? Now they're both in the garden. Fear and shame, and the response to that is to run away. The response to sin is to run from God instead of to him, so they hide in the trees. The man-God relationship that was right, that was established by God, is now shattered. It's broken. Okay? Now look what happens next. Verse 11. Remember, there were three relationships that were right in God's plan. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. God confronts Adam and says, did you do the thing I told you not to do? Did you do the one thing I told you not to do? Now, parents, you have had this conversation, right? Come on. There was one thing. (laughs) Did you do the one thing? And what is Adam's response? She did. She did. The woman that you gave me, by the way, right? She did it. He shifts all the blame. Wasn't me, God. It was her. So it's safe to say now the man-woman relationship is broken, right? Because Adam just threw Eve under the bus and gave God a little kick in the shins at the same time, right? Hey, not me, her, maybe a little you, I'm just saying, right? Do you see what's happening now, though? The perfect relationships that God has established are all broken. They're all broken because of sin. This is what it does. The relationship with God was already broken, right? Adam's just kind of helping it along a little more. So God confronts Eve and says in verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Eve says something that's true, also not taking responsibility, right? Nobody is taking responsibility for what they've done, which sounds an awful lot like the world we live in, right? Nobody takes responsibility for their own actions. It's easier to point the finger. So the God-man relationship's broken. The man-woman relationship is broken. Now we see that the man-creation relationship is broken, which we'll see in the curse. So what's going to come next is what just happened is what we refer to in Scripture as the fall, The fall of man from God's grace because of sin, okay? Now we will see the result of that, starting in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, so first he's going to speak to the serpent, his enemy, Satan. He's going to speak to all three parties here. We're just going to read the whole thing. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. 
really quickly, that doesn't mean you're going to really want to be a great wife and your husband's going to be a jerk. What that means is you're going to be a jerk and he's going to be a jerk. That's what that means, okay? Verse 17, and, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Take a break for, there for a minute because listen, this is not you should never listen to your wife. That is not the takeaway here. Hear what God is saying. Because you have listened to your wife instead of me. That's what he's saying. So guys, you can't use this at home. God said, don't listen to you, right? It's not what he's saying. He's saying, do not listen to her over me. I am God. I have the authority here, right? Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So all three relationships are broken because of disobedience, because of sin. God says, where there was peace, now there's enmity between my creation and, and man, right? The, the very creation is going to work against you. It's going to war against you. God's kingdom has been fractured. His peace has been fractured. Where there was peace, now there's strife. Where there was order, now there's chaos. Where there was no violence, now there's unbelievable violence. We only have to go one chapter ahead, one generation away, when Adam's son is killed by his other son. Unbelievable violence comes as a result of rejecting God's plan. Pain is now present. Work is now hard. Relationships are now broken. All of the good things that God created, all of the things he created for good and said were good and were here for us to enjoy, work and relationships and food and sex, all broken, twisted, distorted, and wrong. That's what has happened now. And the ultimate expression of that is death and decay. He said, out of dust you came, out of, into dust you will go. Now you will die. You are cut off from the source of life. You're like a rose just clipped. Still looks alive, but it's dying, right? That's what's happened here. And we think, wow, all of this because of Adam and Eve? Like, didn't I even get a chance? <laughs> Come on. We all know we prefer our own plan to God's plan. That's the deal. <laughs> We all make the same choice over and over again to reject God's plan. Say, I reject your plan. I like my own plan, and I'll go that way. Romans 8, chapter 20 describes it this way. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. That's where we live. We live in the pains of childbirth world. That's where we are right now. And we look around and we see all of that and that rings true. That sounds right. That sounds like the world we live in. And then we shake our fist in God, at God and say, why did you make it like this? Why did you make the world like this? And doesn't that sound ridiculous after reading what we've just read? And if I were God, 
I would say, don't look at me. You jacked it up. You fix it. Right? That would be the response if I am the Lord. And thankfully, I'm not. Because that's not at all how he responds. In fact, we see almost immediately, even in the curse, we see the initiation of God's plan. God's rescue plan. We see a foreshadowing in the curse, a prophecy in that curse. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The offspring of Eve, a son of Eve, will bruise the serpent and will be bruised in the process. God's rescue plan will be effective, but it will be painful. It will have a cost. As Scott already mentioned this morning, in the Old Testament, there are over 300 prophecies about the Messiah. From here on out, it's all about talking about God's rescue that is coming. God's coming rescuer, and it tells what he's going to be like and what he's going to do and what he's going to look like. He's going to be riding on a donkey. It's pretty specific, 300 of them, so that when he came, we would be able to recognize him, so that when God's rescuer came, we would know it. That's the point of all those prophecies, and God's rescuer is Jesus. God's rescuer is his own son, and he will not just be a good guy who teaches us how to live a better life, and he will not just be a guy who shows us how to live a life that if we do it well enough, will be acceptable to God. That's not the point of why he came. Instead, he will live the life that we can't live, and he will die the death that we are supposed to die as a result of our sin. What Jesus did, we could not do. And what Adam and Eve could not resist and what we cannot resist, Jesus resisted. Matthew chapter 4, you don't have to turn there. Matthew chapter 4 tells about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Some of you might recall this story, but it says that the Spirit of God leads Jesus out into the wilderness so that he can be tempted by God's enemy. And he's tempted in exactly the same three ways that Eve is tempted. He is starving in the wilderness. He hasn't eaten for weeks. And Satan comes along and says, hey, there's bread. I mean, there's, there are stones. Just turn it into bread and eat. Satisfy your appetite. Remember that part with Eve? And Jesus says, no, I won't do that. And he says, look at all these kingdoms. Look at all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you all of that. Doesn't that look great? Don't you want that? All you have to do is reject God's plan. Just bow down to me. I'll give you everything. And Jesus says, no. He says, throw yourself off of the temple and let your angels catch you so that everyone will know who you are because this is all about you, Jesus. And Jesus says, it's not about me. It's about my Father and doing his will. I won't do that. Same three things that trapped Eve, Jesus resists in his temptation in the wilderness. His death atoned for our sin and our rejection of God's plan. Finally, atoned for it, paid for it. And his resurrection displayed his power over death under the curse that we are under of death and decay. And Jesus says, I have power over even that. So his death and his life and his resurrection all point us to the hope of God's kingdom being restored. That's why through all of the Gospels, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God. God restoring his kingdom through his rescuer, God has a plan. God has a plan to live in relationship with the people that he loves. 
And his plan is to love us into that kingdom, to love us into a kingdom of love and hope, of security, of safety, and ultimately a kingdom of life. And he's put boundaries in place to help us, to keep us from pursuing the alternative, which is a kingdom of violence and chaos and destruction and ultimately death, which we're all pretty well aware of. Do you see the difference between the two kingdoms and the two choices? The difference between God's plan and our plan. That's what we read about in Scripture. What we pursue outside of God is hopeless. What we pursue outside of God is godless in every sense of the word. You have your connection card this morning. I would just ask if you would take that out with your worship folder. If you haven't filled it out already, I would love for you to do that because I want to ask you I want to ask you a question. I, I want to ask you for a response this morning. The uncomfortable truth that we are faced with this morning is that this world that we're living in right now, however broken it is, however painful it is, however fractured it is, is either the closest thing we're ever going to experience to heaven or it's the closest thing we're ever going to experience to hell. That's the uncomfortable truth about where we are right now, about this world. And let me explain that. For those of you who submit, for those of you who surrender to the plan of God, this world right now where you are in all of its pain and illness and chaos and disease and violence and all of that is the closest thing you are ever going to experience to hell. Isn't that good news? Because from here on out, reality for you means being in the very presence of God and he will obliterate all of the ravages of sin. Here's what Revelation says. Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. That's the reality for those who are surrendered to God's plan. But the opposite is true. For those who reject God's plan, for those who reject God's kingdom, for those like Adam and Eve who say, I have a better idea, I have a better plan, I'm going to do it my own way, then this world in all of its pain, in all of its brokenness, in all of its violence is the closest thing you will ever experience to heaven. Because reality from here on out is a, is a life, is an eternity without the presence of God where the ravages of sin are no longer held back. They are no longer held on a leash by him. And if you find yourself there this morning, all I would say is there is hope because God has a plan, because God sent a rescuer, because Jesus has come. And he doesn't stop loving us when we reject his plan. He waits for open arms for those that would surrender their plan and submit to his. Does that make sense? God is waiting with open arms for those that would say, I give up on my plan and I surrender to yours. That's all it takes. You don't have to clean yourself up. You don't have to get right with God. You just have to say, my plan is lame. I'm I'm on your plan now. That's it. That's it. So I asked you for a response. Here's what I would ask for. 
if that's where you are this morning, just tell God, your plan is better than mine. I give up on my plan, and I'll take your plan. And that's why we're here. We want to tell you about it. We want to help you to submit yourself to the plan of God. It's what we're all trying to do, very imperfectly. That's why we're here. If that's where you are, would you put that on your connection card? I want to be a follower of Jesus. I'm, I'm in. I want to be a part of that plan. For those of you who are here this morning, you're already submitted to God's plan. You're like, hey, I'm already there. I'm living in hope and just hurry it up, God, because I'm ready to get out of here. Take me home. I would just say, hold up a minute. Hold up. Because you have to understand what the implication of that is. Because I understand that line of thinking. Because there are days when I just say, God, if you came back right now, that'd be fine with me because I'm tired. But here's the implication. Think of the people in your life that you know that are not surrendered to God's plan. And if God ended it right now, what does that mean for them? That's the question we have to ask. God wants everyone to be restored to relationship with him. He wants everybody to experience his peace, his shalom, to be a part of his kingdom. And so while we wait with great anticipation for what is waiting for us, we have to share that heart for his creation. We have to share that heart for his people. We have to think of those who would be left out by their own choice and if that's you this morning, I would just say, write them down. Put a name to that. Who do you know? Who do you know that needs to know? Because here's what I would say to us, church. Everyone needs to know that there is a rescuer. Everyone needs to know that God has a plan. Everyone needs to know what we're talking about here this morning. We have good news, right? We have good news and it has invaded a dark place. And everyone needs to know what the good news is because everyone knows it's a dark place. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray for those that are in this room right now that do not know you. And God, I pray that you would rescue them. I pray that you would prompt in their heart to submit to you. And I pray for those who are in this room who know you, Lord, that we would be submitted to your plan and that we would be committed to telling people of your rescue plan. We love you. We praise you this morning. In your name, amen.